This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on the Morning Run, and I'm Philip C. On today's Property Show, we are in conversation with Alan Chong. He's the Executive Director of Research and Consultancy at Seville's Singapore, as we discuss Singapore's world-famous HDB, or its Housing Development Board, and we go deeper into their public housing market. Welcome, Alan, to The Property Show. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, fine. Thank you for asking. Can you help us unpack the history of HDB, the Housing Development Board. How did it come about? Uh, Because from my understanding, it's actually a 90-year project, isn't it? The history of Singapore's uh, public housing started with the Singapore Improvement Trust when Singapore was still a colony uh, of the United Kingdom. And uh, the SIT was responsible for urban planning and urban renewal in Singapore. It was formally established in 1927 under the Singapore Improvement Ordinance. And uh, it started to do back, back then improvement schemes like uh, making buildings, sanit- uh, set, uh, making, uh, make it, marking out unsanitary buildings for demolition. And then it began, uh, began constructing public housing in 1935. Unfortunately, the SIT could not keep up with the population growth and there was a, sh- a huge shortage of housing in Singapore. Uh, so finally, the HDB was established uh, in uh, in 1960, and the SIT was dissolved. So that's how HDB came about. Um, It started with that. British SIT, then HDB came about in 1960 under the plan ordinance uh, of that year. And then the from that on, I think HDB had a history that was one that's synonymous with public housing. SIT had something more than public housing. It did some infrastructure improvement work. So in 1960, because of the housing crisis, many people were living in unhygienic un- slums and uh, crowded quarter settlements. Only 9% of Singaporeans lived in government flats, while the others uh, were looking for a place to stay and uh, we had a lot of kampongs and slums uh, throughout the island, even some in um, in the central areas, right? And so new towns were then constructed uh, in the 1950s. So new towns did not actually begin, uh, begin, begin with HDB. It started with the Singapore Improvement Trust and based on British planning concepts and at low densities. Then when HDB took over in the 1960s, the densities of these new towns were increased and more amenities increased. Added. And the first HDB new town was Topayo and uh, it contained industrial areas within the town and to provide employment and also a town center with amenities. Then moving on to the 1970s, right, new towns, further uh, more new towns were built uh, and these were further from the city center and were planned according to different new town models. These models of planning for new towns evolved over time and then they contain neighborhoods. So you have a town center and then you have neighborhoods um, served by neighborhood centers and then the town center it's for everyone. So the new town model was then subsequently revised in the late 70s to what they call the new town structural model and they they included the concept of precincts uh, on a checkerboard kind of model structure. So what happens is that so you have a town center served by a cluster of neighborhood centers and each neighborhood centers are served by three uh, or more precincts hierarchical in nature and then at each level whether the town center neighborhood center and a precinct center they had different hierarchical uh, goods and services on, on in shops offered 
What do you think is the key success factor of HDB? Why is it so successful? HDB was successful because they had an accompanying act with it, and it was called the Land Acquisition Act that made it possible for government to acquire lands under compulsory acquisition. And from those compulsory acquisitions of lands, they then in uh, did transfer pricing to HDB for HDB to build the public housing. Without the Land Acquisition Act, the lands that are owned by uh, private enterprises or landlords would not be able to be redeveloped in a large swath of uh, new towns. That was the key distinguishing factor. So HDB was the infrastructure and enabler, the planner, whereas the legal side gave that um, the strength to I mean, give them the ability to act out what they had planned for. Okay, so basically, essentially, they had the authority to basically acquire land. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, maybe not under HDB, but under land acquisition and the Ministry of Law. So they were acquired, they were invoked of the Land Acquisition Act for public purposes. And then they would then become government land. And the government then does a transfer pricing to the HDB. HDB gets these lands on 99-year leases. And then they build the uh, flats for the public. Tell me the process. How long does it take, you know, from identifying the land to actually passing first keys over to the first tenants? How long does it take and what's usually the process? All right. um, I think by now, the Land Acquisition Act has, is almost seldom invoked. In the past decade or two, only had been invoked a little, uh, once in a while when they acquired little pieces of land for the building of MRT stations or MRT lines. That's all about it. But most of the heavy lifting was done in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, and then to the mid-80s when they acquired a lot of these uh, lands in the suburban areas. So the land acquisition process has is almost done, all right? And now the lands are now either state land, right? Singapore Land Authority manages it or has been transferred to HDB. Once it transfers to HDB, HDB will do the planning. Initially, when they do the planning, of course, it won't be available for sale to the public. Then when they get, uh, everything is ready and in order, they have the concept plan or the master plan for the town is up. HDB working in conjunction with another body called the Urban Redevelopment Authority. That's the Singapore Planning Authority. HDB is just looking after public housing. URA uh, looks after all the planning matters in Singapore, the land users. Uh, I think the same in Malaysia, you have master plan. We also have the master plan. The master plan is under the purview of URA. HDB is just looking after the HDB public housing areas and uh, company services. Now, after we get the HDB brainstorms with URA on the land users in a new town, proposed new town, and then they will start planning the layout, the typologies of the building blocks, commercial areas, the road network. And then when that is done, they have the blocks done up and the design of the block and the units. They will call a tender on the, for architectural services. In the past, they do it in-house. But nowadays, they have some competition with private uh, architects. They can participate. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, you say one of the benefits is that everything seems very tightly coordinated, right, with URA, mm-hmm. HDB, and even with the land acquisition process, although, as you say, it's not invoked too often. Can you share the perspective in terms of costs? Because some also say that, you know, in the early stages also, HDB has been very affordable, right, for Singapore's wallet. How, how did they manage to bring costs down? The key was this, uh, the Land Acquisition Act um, in the 60s and 70s, uh, up to the, even up to the 80s, fixed the land acquisition cost at, at, a, at a certain rate. So it wasn't market-driven. It's only in the 90s that it changed that. When most of the lands have been acquired, then they um, you know, tweaked the law to 
compensate people based on market value. But back then, it wasn't exactly market value. It was a fixed rate, a pretty low rate. And so the government could afford to acquire these lands because these uh, were acquired at relatively low rates. If you have done it at this today, I think it would not be possible because politically, I don't think in this today, uh, this sort of uh, uh, woke world, I think people will not accept this sort of rates. And also, um, it will be tremendously expensive, I mean, uh, if to acquire the market rates today. Then the land was acquired on the low end and HDB back in the 60s and 70s provided bare basic housing. That's why it's cheap. I mean, it was just, uh, you just, well, it wasn't prefabricated back then. In the 60s and 70s, it was just simple designs, uh, concrete, some bricks and uh, the lift was just bare basic mm. lift, right? But in the moving on into the 90s and the new this millennia, HDB began to have uh, experiment with designs and so better quality finishes. And in some instances, the build quality of the HDB flat is better than private apartments in some instances. So, um, so the quality went up. They had to then account for these costs. Uh, and of course, today, the definition of, of all the, um, HDB flat being subsidized is one that word subsidy is defined as um, the, the difference between the current market value of the flat and uh, what they are selling you in, in the market. Yeah, and so I'm quite keen to understand, you know, you see this yeah. shift happening in the 1990s and into this millennium. Uh, what is the cost differential or the subsidy percentage now? Like, how much is it to uh, construct a HDB equivalent versus a private sector now when you look at it side by I side? I think they are selling you, for, let's say they are selling you an apartment for about 380000 400000 Singapore dollars. It seems a lot in Malaysia, but uh, Singapore is still relatively uh, affordable. And comparatively yeah. to private sector, how much does that mark up? Wow. You know, uh, a private sector equivalent for the kind of size, say about 98, 95 square meters, or about a thousand square feet, say, uh, would be approximately 1.6 million, 1.5 million. Wow, so, so 380,000 versus 1.6 million for the same yeah, size, like for life. There's a locational difference. Sure. Um, the 1.6 million property could be located next to the MRT, but 380,000, 400,000 HDB flat may be located slightly further away. But HDB does have pricing differential. If you are in a prime area, the pricing can go up to 600000 700000 Still, there's a... Um, more than 50% gap, yeah. More than that, more, yeah, more than that. I think the discount from private to HDB could be uh, 70%, 50% to 70%. That's why I'm wondering, how how does, you know, how does the government sustain this kind of projects at this cost? Uh, it, mm-hmm. it must come at a significant loss, isn't it? It's absorbing a lot of the costs, correct me if I'm wrong. The lands were acquired... Uh, with with 1960s, 1970s prices, uh, okay. uh, right? They were quite at a kind of at a, those levels. Um, now in Singapore, uh, very different from Malaysia. For private uh, development, land cost is approximately 60 to 65 percent of total development cost. I think in Malaysia is about 10%. If you, um, now for HDB, since the lands were acquired so long ago, the land cost as a percentage of total development cost is very low. So you may go back to about 10% of total development cost and that's where the savings come from. So the private developer, uh, when he gets the land, most of these launches every year are um, lands that were tendered out by the government and, the, and it goes to the highest bidder. And so developers bid for it and they bid at a high price. But HDB is given a the land at a transfer pricing, repriced, and then you are able to sell it at a much lower cost. Then secondly, HDB, although these days they've improved the quality, but it's also relatively no frills. You know, there's no tennis court, 
no swimming pool, uh, and it doesn't come with air conditioning. So higher density then? Higher density, basic, still quite basic, but good. they can come with uh, good uh, finishing styles, towels, etc. But uh, they don't give you things like cooker hood, you know, your your European washing machine or your fridge. Whereas the private developer does provide for these. Mm. So that's where the pricing differential is partly accounted for by the quality of finishes or the accoutrements that the private development will, developer will give you. And then we're going to discuss more after this. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Alan Chong. He's the Executive Director of Research and Consultancy at Seville's Singapore as we discuss Singapore's public housing market. Now, Alan, we talked about that huge gap between uh, public housing pricing versus private sector pricing. I'm very keen to understand whether this has implications on the private sector market, right? Private housing market. In the past, it hasn't been much of a... There hasn't been that much of a difference until because in the uh, in the decades of the 60s, 70s, 80s, if you own a HDB flat, you cannot own a private property. But that changed in the 90s, from 90 onwards, 1990s onwards, that you can buy a private property if you still have a HDB flat. So you're allowed to own two. And then there was a, um, you know, there was a, after three decades of um, rapid economic growth. Uh, there had been quite a lot of savings among Singaporeans living in HDB flats. So they started to buy private property. And uh, initially, the number of private properties in Singapore, well, um, weren't that, that many. Mm. So, But over time, I think we saw both HDB flats and private property prices are very correlated. Right? They move almost almost in, in lockstep. Lock yeah, in lockstep over a period of uh, say in the 1990s till, till today. And that's could be partly explained by the fact that you have upgraded demand. People, HGV flat prices go up to sell, you know, they can narrow the gap, bridge the gap between private and HGB to go to private. So it's like an accordion effect. Mm. HGB, mass market condominium prices, next le- tier, the next tier will be mid-level, then higher level condo prices and then landed uh, property prices. So all of them are moving alike in um, in an accordion kind of fashion. Um, in if that's how the market has been behaving. Now over time, um, the, some of these preferences and tastes and changes are taking place today. It becomes harder to evaluate HDB demand because the millennials, uh, from what I suspect and I hear from the, on the, from the ground and speaking to some of them, is that they prefer to live in private properties. Why is it because of the bl- labeling and branding of HDB? It is so after, um, you know, these millennials were born in the 90s and so they are, you know, late 80s, 90s and they have a kind of taste and preference which is different from the uh, baby boomers and those, uh, say, the Madeka generation and those born at, uh, during the years of Singapore's independence. They, um, so they think, in for lack of a better word, maybe they think it's more cool to live in private property and some don't even want to buy, you know, they prefer to rent. HDB was formed partly to allow also to promote national building by, um, you know, encouraging Singaporeans to own their properties rather than rent. But the millennials today think that I think I want to rent. So parents become a bit concerned that their children are not thinking like the way they should be thinking. Uh, and then savings from the parents come into the market. The children don't want to buy property, don't want to buy HDB or even a private property. So the parents force it on them and parents use their name to buy a property. And uh, the millennials then end up uh, possibly even renting mm. a smaller room in a co-living or a studio 
Whereas for their private property, they rent it out for income. Yeah. So it, it's kind of uh, complicated now compared with the early days. I think complications come about when you have an overly successful uh, public housing program because if you build so many flats in the earlier decades, you end up with an aging stock, huge aging stock of public flats. So now what are you going to do with them over the years? Yeah, you know, it looks new, spanking new back, back in the 70s, but today that stock is huge. And so, uh, and the aging the population in these flats are aging too the big conundrum is what do you do with them yeah i wonder what the demand is what the waiting list is now for hdbs it is still quite long right four four and a half years has it improved or not because as you say tastes are changing the millennials are less inclined to go to hdbs do you see less pressure or demand for hdbs i think the pandemic has caused further delays to the handover of hdb flats the construction time is longer now um you need, if you get a brand new HDB flat, a subsidized, what we call BTO, built to order, built to order HDB flat, uh, there's a minimum occupation of five years. During which you cannot sell it or neither can you rent it out. Um, so that five years starts from the day you get your key mm. and not from the day you book. Yeah. It may be four years to get your flat ready and then the fifth, five years starts after the fourth year. So you have in total nine, ten years, nine to ten years um, before you can sell a HDB flat. So, um, you know, at over time in Singapore too, that, you know, marriages also tend to break down more often these days. And it, do you, person may not want to wait for 10 years before they sell to go to a private property or they sell in order to be able to buy another private property. So that 10 years lockup is getting to some of these millennials who think that it's too long. Right? I want, you know, they want things yeah. faster. Faster, faster turnaround, yeah. That's why I'm yeah. wondering. I'm wondering whether the demand for HDBs is reducing. Actually, my belief is yes, it's reducing among those uh, who have the wherewithal, the professionals who uh, incomes have risen in Singapore for fresh graduates, and those who got into the fast track into a fast track career. More and more, I'm getting into that. So what we are left with are those who are in the um, you know the, the averages and below average cohort mm. in uh, any year. I wonder then, you know, because if the intention it really is to provide shelter and public housing, whether these relaxation in regulations where you can kind of transition relatively seamlessly between private and public housing, whether that's an opportunity or leakage that happens, which perhaps deny really genuine people from, uh, uh, you know, getting their keys. Do you see that happening? I will think this, if um, people have a need and they, they um, for, if the people have a need for public housing and the uh, incomes are relatively challenged, there's no problem in getting HDB flat. Um, what HDB flats or public flats are facing now, these new flats, is there's a tremendous overlap in the, you know, there's an income cap to get a HDB flat these days. About. It's um, 16000 for executive condominiums and 14000 for HDB flats. For a household, that's for household. If a household gets uh, earns about 10000 or onwards, that household could easily afford a small private condominium. Mm. So that overlap with uh, of private and HDB in a world where tastes are changing and there's massive hierarchy at play, self-actualization means that you will have uh, you start that blurred lines you cannot de- de- um, forecast demand from this this overlap. Uh, that's where things get a bit uh, waffly. You know? Yeah, so I, and that's where my question then is you know, what is the future of HDB then? You know, if you cannot uh, envision the future so uh, accurately and you are talking about building and laying out significant physical infrastructure how does a h how does singapore and you know 
the management and the board of HDB reimagine public housing for Singapore in the future in view of these significant uncertainties? My belief is that I think they are doing a little bit of soul searching now. Um, my population is aging, growth rates, uh, birth rates are low. I think the demand for HDB over time will start to decline. The HDB could go back to its original roots of trying to provide for those uh, who really need a roof over their head. People who could not afford private property. And ironically, HDB has you know, been raising the income cap uh, over the years to allow more to qualify for HDB flat because of uh, salary increases, wages going up. So the income cap has been rising over the years. So now it's at 14000 But I would think if you really want to turn things on its head, the income cap should be lower to, say, back to 8000 or 10000 So those who can afford HDB are actually those, sorry, those who qualify HDB, you know that they are the ones who are likely not to be able to qualify for private property because of the income limitations. But when you push the income cap too high, you can't forecast demand uh, at the end of it. So HDB may have to go back to serving, the, go back to its original roots to serve those who uh, you know, could not get on the fast track of life. To a certain extent, it does feel like HDB is a bit of a victim of its own success. It has really provided uh, that security and safety to that extent, right? And then it's basically forcing that reorientation back to its original intent. Is that fair? Yes. Sometimes uh, it's not good to be first, I mean, to be in my view. For example, if you are first to implement a computer system, you know, and then later on find that the system improves with version 2, version 3, and then you've invested in version 1, you can't dump version 1 and uh, you can't dump dump the IBM mainframe to get to the new systems. That's like the same thing, right? Alan, that was very interesting. That's all the time we have for today's property show. Thank you for being on the show, Alan. I've been speaking to Alan Chong, Executive Director of Research and Consultancy at Seville's Singapore on Singapore's public housing market and its famous HDB Housing Development Board. I'm Philip C. signing off for the morning run. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.